Welcome to Screen Looking, a podcast where close friends take a closer look at their favorite video games. I'm your host, Andrew Kuar. This is episode 11. What's most incredible to me about video games in the late 90s is how much new technology was being thrown at developers back then, including a third dimension, and yet how immediately they used it all to its fullest potential. Today, the Quantum Leap's video games experience occur with a little less fanfare, and the experiences that leverage them often arrive closer to the end of a console generation rather than the beginning. If I had to give any example, I'd point to one of the most iconic franchises in gaming history, Metal Gear Solid. Created by legendary video game auteur Hideo Kojima, Metal Gear has always had a penchant for showing the video game industry just how far it can take things. Directed like action movies and written like spy novels, these games embedded themselves into pop culture and the minds of gamers with incredible efficiency, my own included. Through its iconic titular role, Solid Snake, Kojima had both an immense amount of fun and something meaningful to express. One minute, you're sneaking around a nuclear weapons facility in a cardboard box, peeking through the handles to spy on guards. The next minute, Snake is having an existential conversation about global politics and the life of a soldier. Give Kojima's games enough time, and the fourth wall will eventually start to break too. This playfulness with our expectations in video games is trademark Kojima. His wild creativity and numerous WTF moments swirl and build, eventually giving way to something more poignant. And arguably, no entry in the series explores this quite like Metal Gear Solid 3, Snake Eater, a game that arrived near the end of the PlayStation 2's life cycle in 2004. Widely regarded as its pinnacle, Metal Gear Solid 3 refined everything about the series, yet it continued to surprise gamers, first and foremost as a prequel. It put players in the role of Big Boss, the looming shadowy figure that has served as the main villain of the entire Metal Gear series, someone who once went by the codename Snake, who looks like Snake, talks like Snake, yet isn't characterized in quite the same way. Set in the 1960s during the Cold War era, Snake is sent to rescue a Russian weapons specialist before his work gets in the hands of the wrong people. Things don't go according to plan, and Snake has to confront the many contradictions within his own sacrifices and those within his government. Metal Gear Solid 3 may be 15 years old, but we hope you'll revisit it with us today. Like us, you might be surprised to discover how sophisticated and immersive its mechanical aspects still appear, and yet how relevant its messages about the truth continue to be in 2019. Metal Gear Solid 3 is in many ways a contradiction by design, but that's what makes it so endlessly fascinating and the focus of our conversation. Welcome back to the show. Uh, it certainly wouldn't be an episode of Screen Looking without my dear friend and co-host and the mastermind behind today's episode, Alex Koval. Alex, welcome back. Greetings. Great to be here as always. How many, uh, how many Metal Gear games have you played? Uh, I've played two, the original um, and the and Metal Gear Solid 2, uh, much to my dismay. But You know, similar to you, I played the first two, especially the first one, quite a bit. Um, Metal Gear Solid 3 was actually kind of where I fell off from the series for a while, and that's something that individually uh, two of our good friends are super, super... Uh, passionate about this series and about this game in particular and uh you know i guess we'll start there and introduce our guests that sounds good all right so returning from episode five where we talked about marvel's spider-man 
is a good friend and friend of the show, Ryan Ward. Ryan, welcome back. Thank you. It's good to be back. How are you guys doing? Doing great. Doing good. Doing good. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, I, I absolutely love Metal Gear. Uh, I've played every single entry into this series, except for Metal Gear Rising, which uh, had nothing to do with any of the Snake characters. So <laughs> I have a wide breadth of lore stored in my head, which could have gone to probably a lot of things that would have helped my career. But instead, it's full of Metal Gear. So I'm ready to do this as hard as you want. Yeah, thanks for thanks for coming back. This is gonna be exciting. I think it was it was actually in episode five that at some point you dropped the fact that you could probably talk about Metal Gear Solid for straight seventy two hours. So um, we've got seventy one and a half to go. So buckle up. <laughs> um, yes. And uh, yeah, to add to all that, um, Alex, do you want to introduce our next guest and our newest guest to Screen Looking? I would be delighted. Um, so our guest, uh, our new guest for today is my friend Al Pochi, uh, straight from Ireland. He is a uh, paramedic uh, over there. And we initially met in college about 14 years ago. And we quickly bonded over our shared love of video games, which include, I'm sure no surprise to any listeners here, but Resident Evil 2. Also, we've spent countless hours playing Final Fantasy Tactics as well. And uh, Al was actually part of my crew when I decided to make the somewhat infamous Resident Evil fan film. So very good friend. He's been with me, you know, uh, as a co-gamer for a long time. And um, Metal Gear Solid is actually one of those games that our tastes kind of diverge on. You know, I've played Metal Gear Solid 1 and 2, like I said, but uh, hadn't gone any further in the series. And actually, it was Al who introduced me to Metal Gear Solid 3. This was a long time ago, probably just out of college, I'm thinking, but I went to visit him in Chicago and uh, I had quite the experience. So we were hanging out and uh, getting uh, getting up to some, uh, what did you call it, Al? It was uh, adolescent hijinks. Adolescent hijinks, yes. You know, just natural stuff straight from the earth. And, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, we, we decided in our, in our sort of uh, state, we'll say, to play some Metal Gear Solid 3. So I'm sitting there, the room is dark, and uh, I'm watching this game unfold and just so confused and perplexed by it and watching him kind of make his way through the first couple areas, which are sort of this like forested sort of in the fall, like red, yellow, kind of blendy area and uh, kind of seeing colors merge and just kind of watching this whole thing play out. And Al surrounded by all these weird looking uh, sort of uh, Russian uh, KGB looking fellas um, and all of a sudden steps out if you've played the game before you've experienced him in some fashion but his name is Revolver Ocelot so I'm just sitting there like what the hell is going on totally out of my mind and the camera zooms in like at a lightning pace up into this this young Russian dude's face and in this like really dramatic cutscene, all of a sudden you just hear this freaking, this freaking like cat cry. This guy just lets out, and I laughed harder than I think I had ever laughed up until that point in my entire life. Like, I my mental state was just like so far gone, and I was just not expecting this like badass Russian dude who was like twirling guns around to sound like a freaking house cat, like begging for a saucer of milk. 
Uh, I'm pretty sure I ruptured like three internal organs just from laughing. It was probably the funniest thing ever uh, in my in my video game history for sure. So I have Al to thank for that. And uh, if that's not an introduction, I don't know what is. So I will let you introduce yourself as well if you want to talk to us a little bit about your top five favorite games so the so the listeners get a little bit of a uh, profile on you. Yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, thanks for having me, first of all. I really love what you guys do on this show. The positivity of it is phenomenal. There, There's too many podcasts and things now that are just negativity. So hearing people talk about things they love in a positive light is really great. Alex, you're bringing up a lot of nostalgia for me. Great blast from the past. So if we're going to talk about video games that are in my top five list, which very hard to put together, kind of like saying top five songs, top five movies, top five books, going well back, I would say Gunstar Heroes on the Sega Genesis was a really solid game, a really different game to a lot of what was out at the time uh, for just kind of a shoot 'em up really introduced some off-the-wall concepts that were very advanced, very new, very engaging, and a really great co-op shooter. So myself and my brother could play that together without having to beat the shite out of each other for <laughs> use of the control. Moving forward a little, like the PlayStation era, I would definitely look at Final Fantasy Tactics, as you said, but like Final Fantasy IX as well, just to put in my two cents on that well-argued discussion about which of those games is the best. I would vote for nine, just because it's this really colorful, immersive, joyful world to be in. And even though the plot can be very heavy, almost every place you go to is this beautiful almost renaissance painting with detail in every layer and you just feel transported for that i suppose then they like ps3 era uh fallout 3 which again controversial opinion i don't like new vegas i really like fallout 3 that game again just delivering exactly what it says on the box that it's about being in the post-apocalyptic world and fighting crazy enemies and making these weird moral choices that wouldn't exist in any other game, but because you're in the wasteland that is both you know dark and it deals with heavy themes like cannibalism and extreme violence, slavery, it also has really weird off-the-wall characters like a robot that thinks it's part of one of the founding fathers and you have to steal the Declaration of Independence from it and Nicolas Cage isn't even there. Does that make it one of the Patriots from the Metal Gear series if it's a robot that thinks it's a founding father? You mean the la le le lo Oh, you said the password. You get a prize. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> Oh, <laughs> um, uh, that's gonna be endless then, fun. Yeah. Oh well, Al, that's um, that's a good list, and I gotta say, I give you props for bringing up Final Fantasy IX. Um, that is that is a very near and dear game to my heart. I I think it doesn't get as much credit as it deserves. Um, 
but yeah, that's that's a really good one. So I'm I'm with you on that. If I could just say too, uh, another game that I would threaten to be on your podcast about would be also be Final Fantasy Tactics because I think that's just a criminally underrated game and a genre that they're just not even making anymore. Well, you're talking, you're speaking straight to Alex's heart right there. Oh yeah, yeah. we gotta get around to that game for sure. I I skylogged so many hours on that game. <laughs> even though you know Battle Gear Solid is is not turn-based it is still very tactical so it's it's clear why that's that's a a favorite of yours i want to start with you on metal gear solid 3 al uh, because you wrote you wrote us something about it um about when you were playing it when you were 17 and as i mentioned at the top of the episode i i really related to that because you were talking about how it was sort of the end of an era for console games in a lot of ways and it was the end of a period of your life where you were playing single player games with that much attention um, or that much, you know, putting that much time into them. And that's kind of similar to how it was for me. I I think it's partly because of how hard the game was up front compared to maybe the other Metal Gears, just how it threw you right into the thick of it. Um, Mm -hmm. It was also probably partly because I I couldn't afford it and I rented it and could only beat so much of it. Uh, Ryan, I think I got that from Video Replay, actually. Uh, Oh, no. Yeah. I won't. I won't go into detail on video replay, but that was a hell of a place for a lot of reasons. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. So I didn't really get to. I kind of fell off console games for a while when I got into three. I just it it, it didn't. I didn't give it enough the time it deserved. Um, I'm gonna really quickly read a bit of what you wrote to us, if that's cool, because I think it's actually really articulate, and I think it's a great place to start um, as we're talking about more of the nostalgic elements. Perfect. Go ahead. Okay, cool. So um, when we were prepping for the episode, you you shot us an email with a few things you really wanted to touch on. And the last thing you brought up really uh, resonated with me. And what you said was that Metal Gear Solid 3 satisfied me for many hours as my lifetime as a gamer started to flicker. Soon I would be too busy to devote my pointless downtime to games playing deep into the night and foregoing responsibilities. The game itself is a swan song for the series and was originally intended to be the end point, filling in a crucial part of the overarching story. It gave the sense of coming full circle and leaving us satisfied that the rest is history. A lot has happened since that game came out nearly 15 years ago, but for nostalgia's sake, it's hard to beat remembering life at 17, getting lost in the jungle, and playing a spy novel as it twisted and turned in front of me. So I think that's, um, yeah, that's, I think that's a lot of our relationship with games growing up and kind of getting out of them and getting back into them like we are now. And I'm wondering if you could just elaborate on what you wrote to us there and maybe just talk about what was so immersive. So the game came out 2004 per this recording. That's about 15 years ago. And like I said, the advances that have come on have absolutely changed the industry when you bought a PS2 and a game back in 2003, 2004. You got the full game when you know you opened the box. Your PS2 was going to work. It, it's still a workhorse system. I imagine if I pulled it out of my parents' closet and flicked it on, that all-too-familiar klaxon of the, of the system opening would just instantly start. There'd be no update needed. You wouldn't have to reset any wi-fi on it there's no dlc there's no um pre-order bonuses there's no patches there's no you know forced multiplayer there's none of that and it was a really pure expression of a game then because 
you were interacting with it on your own from you know a, from a cord a corded controller that you had to play with and you just you had to focus in so much on that because you you literally felt tethered to what you were doing again just growing up in that time as millennial you know a zenial is a term now of starting your childhood in the analog days and growing up in digital then that's kind of what it felt like was that we this was going to be the last of the innocent times and things were going to get a lot more complicated from then to to look at metal gear solid 3 in particular it was such a promise fulfilled in a certain way from you know the hype of metal gear solid 1 being very different from any other game coming out at that time and creating the stealth genre uh, along with other games like Thief, which was only possible because of technological advances, but I don't know too much about that. Having Metal Gear 2 come out and being kind of disappointed, I think there's a universal feeling of what the hell with that game. Not to say it wasn't very fun, engaging, didn't that it didn't push the boundaries of what you know, technology was capable of. Not that that game doesn't have a lot of love in it, but it goes in weird directions. And so, like you say, where you kind of lost the series after that, Metal Gear Solid 3 was just delivering on everything you wanted from the title and doing so many things with the technology that they had now had several years to familiarize themselves with, to take ideas from the past two games, combine them into something new, and to kind of strip away some of the elements that didn't work before and present a really solid, concise product to you. It, it was just it's like exactly what I wanted in a game. And for me, Personally, I, I, when I was very young, I was obsessed with being a soldier and joining the army and things like that. And for better or worse, that never happened. But, you know, my escapism to play a game that gave a really beautiful, good, engaging, challenging experience of being a soldier was practically a dream come true for me. A lot of what you said about the wish fulfillment or the the promise of this game and it leaning so hard into all the resources it had available to deliver such a thorough experience this idea of a vertical slice and um capturing like a segment of the game that i guess very very well articulates what it's supposed to do and alex i'm wondering if that's something you want to jump into and uh, talk to ryan about yeah, that is actually where uh, what I was going to mention is that I think it would be helpful to give the listeners an idea of what Metal Gear Solid 3 is in essence um, and maybe talk a little bit about the br- just briefly about, you know, the main ideas, concepts or gameplay aspects that make the game special. So in video game design and development, there's this idea of what's called a vertical slice and um Basically, what it's getting at is, you know, if you were to have a layer cake in front of you, a full cake, um, and you were to slice out 
just a piece of that cake. You could see the different layers. And so, you know, one layer might be chocolate, vanilla with like a little raspberry filling in there or something. The idea there is to show off all of the aspects of that cake so that a person can say like, oh, that looks like something I would want to buy. Uh, looks delicious. So in game development, a vertical slice is essentially a portion of the game which acts as a, pr a proof of concept um, for stakeholders before they agree to fund the rest of the game. So it's like asking to see a piece of the cake before agreeing to pay for the whole. It might show off staple game mechanics in an environment that is indicative of ones that the player will eventually experience. And uh, basically it's the game's essence reduced to a single gameplay experience. So I'm, I'm wondering, Ryan, if you might be able to think of a, a sort of moment in the game that encapsulates sort of the, the, the best that uh, Metal Gear Solid 3 has to offer or maybe displays sort of the essence of the game to players. Yes, I can. Uh, I think to talk about the essence of Metal Gear, you have to like blow it out super macro and then because you're not going to be able to understand why it is the way it is um, unless you, you start there and, and drill down. So I'm going to go to real life. Um, Hideo Kojima, the director of this game, is Japanese, and he's like a huge history buff. He's a very auteur director. You could tell just one of the things he's trying to grapple with in this whole series is nuclear weapons, right? And the United States is the only country to have ever use nuclear weapons in a wartime scenario against another country. Uh, and that country was Japan. So I think there's like a huge cultural question he's trying to ask there of like, kind of how did all of this happen? And then do you gain anything by vilifying people? And then what's the humanity within the people that would allow these things to happen? So ultimately what you've got is this big anti-war, anti-nuke thing that really challenging you as the player to say, hey, you can either run and gun this whole thing and just shoot everybody and kill your way to the end, or you could be really thoughtful about the people in the game and the enemies that you're faced with, and you could either value their lives or not value them. And so when you get into the gameplay mechanics of this, that's where this shines, right? Because like, sure, there's like different ways to kind of achieve the exact same goal of just like putting bullets in somebody, but the vertical slice of this game like when you see all the mechanics at play it's just so insane the ways around just shooting people a section where you come across a clearing uh and it's got this helicopter in there and like a bunch of other weird details right there's enclosed rooms there's ditches uh there's surplus warehouses there's ammo warehouses like you can go into the ammo warehouse pick up a bunch of c4 use that to blow up the food barracks and like you can blow up the helicopter that eventually patrols for you later and if you blow up the food surplus areas then the the guards are more hungry and so their like alert times are shorter like they just eat stuff off the ground which is kind of insane little section of the game where it's like we're going to present to you all these different things you can do to kind of work your way around your enemies that doesn't involve killing them right you can blow up their weapons so that they don't have enough firepower to like hunt you down later blowing up their food makes them more susceptible to eating poisoned food which can like incapacitate them but not kill them it's just this wild little slice of like crawl through the ditch, sneak into the house, like get the thing that you need to get without killing anybody because there's like hidden ways in and out of there. 
And like the whole time you're just like looking at the patrol patterns of the guards and figuring out, cause there's so many guards that if you trip an alarm and you're basically done at that point. So you're like, okay, if I sneak around, the game's going to be much easier to, to get through without killing anyone. And that was just like mind blowing. For the vertical slice, um, Kojima in the Metal Gear series has a history of making the first act that vertical slice. If you look at Metal Gear Solid Five, especially, like Ground Zeroes is meant to be the first act of the whole game. And it's got every mechanic dialed in like a thousand percent. I think that's probably like the most perfect Metal Gear ever. It doesn't have David Hayter's voice, which automatically disqualifies it from being the best. But uh, <laughs> it's he's kind of like, let's just whip everything up and like get you familiar with everything from there. Like you can do whatever you want. That makes me like want to go out and buy the game today. Yeah. Like, I just think... the sheer amount of complexity in that game, like, that you just described, it seems like, I mean, there are games that are created today with the most, like, modern cutting-edge technology that don't even seem to be, like, a fraction of, like, offer a fraction of the sort of gameplay depth that, that, that what you just described. If you, if you wanted to get into, like, the insane gameplay mechanics here, I don't think we would even have time, because... I mean, there's just so much absurd detail. Like, if you wear the crocodile helmet, dogs won't attack you because they think you're an animal. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I mean, yeah, there's that's awesome. <laughs> Touching on some of the, like, detail and historical elements you talked about, I think we, we could go into a bit of the presentation with this game because I think what we'll find as we go through each little area vignette of the game is just, like, so it's so much about like dichotomies like it's at once very sophisticated and serious and also doesn't take itself too seriously and is sort of all over the place um and to start you know drawing that contrast i think one thing in the presentation is it has a sense of realism that um there's actually a quote from uh, hideo kojima that i want to talk about kojima said the game takes place in the 1960s the cold war era which was the espionage paradise about one-third of the game takes place in buildings, and the remaining two-thirds take place in the natural environments, such as the jungle, mountains, caves, and waterfalls. In real espionage missions, the agent never gets to start right outside the enemy base. He or she lands a few hundred miles away in a country next to the country where the target is. We have decided to depict Metal Gear Solid 3 uh, in the natural environments where the real mission begins. And that was from an interview actually from 2004 uh, with GamePro that um, you kind of can't even find unless you look it up on the Wayback Machine online. One of the things that really shocked me with this when we were doing some research is just how hard it is to find original reviews of this game. Um, a lot of them were done just in print magazines because a lot of game websites weren't really fully developed by then. So a lot of people were just printing the reviews and not archiving them. So that was, um, it's not easy to find stuff like that. Uh, but he really committed to that level of detail. Like I noticed things such as when when bullets were flying, it would cut through the grass and you could actually see the path the bullet took. Um, there was things even in the intro of the game where Snake is jumping out of a plane and you can see when the plane opens, all of his clothes start billowing in a way that characters on the PlayStation 2, I don't think clothes ever had that much detail in the way that they moved. It was always just like static cloth. So even for when this game came out, it was it was a pretty huge technical marvel, like the characters, the expressions they made, their eyes would move. It was just stuff you really weren't seeing before. So it kind of ratcheted up that level of realism, like all the way up. If you're 
if you're looking for magazines that cover Metal Gear Solid 3, you could look inside Metal Gear Solid 3 because Kojima puts like the magazines that you could throw to distract enemies are like game pros with MGS. Oh, really? Like, oh, my God. Yep. Dude. He loves his Easter eggs for sure. There, there just gets to be so many in those games. That's amazing. I do love that you bring up how it's very hard to find the reviews and things about the game because something I've found in this day and age is that, as you, as you talked about in the intro, this is considered the best Metal Gear game by a lot of people, but there's a there's a lack of articulation about why that is and i think some of the other games are easier to get now like again i i don't think there's any legitimate release of metal gear 3 on a modern system where you could still play mgs4 you could still play mgs5 i think they re-released metal gear solid 1 not too long ago and i see a lot of material on Metal Gear 2, a lot of the memeing that goes on, which is insanely appropriate for that game. There, there's just something about Metal Gear 3 that if you if you ask a lot of people why it's the best, I think they'd say you just have to play it. And there's those silly moments, but it's also so serious that you can't just steal little snippets for fake internet points and repeat them ad nauseum. Besides, um, the one thing Ocelot does, I, I'm struggling to remember it. What was it? <laughs> oh, yeah, that's it. It's old. I was, really, I was really hoping it wasn't something other than that, because I'm like, what else could he have no. done? <laughs> yeah. That's, well, a, that's a secret plot point that he wanted to be a Broadway star, but his hopes and dreams got crushed by the KGB. <laughs> <laughs> All that gun twirling was actually, he could do the same thing with batons, right? And he just wanted to be a color <laughs> yeah. guard. Um, exactly, oh my god, the yeah. pieces are falling together. It all makes sense. Well, you had hit on something pretty incredible um, in that excerpt from before where like DLC or, you know, like loading or anything like the, that in this game. When this game came out, it was still an era you got everything in the box. And so every Easter egg, every crazy idea they had, they had to get it in there in time to ship. And so when you get it, it's like, okay, cool. Like there's all this weird stuff we wanted to do and we made a huge maze. And like, you just gotta like, you can get to, right? There's no like, oh, we're gonna roll out like more costumes later or we're gonna do like upgrades that you can only get online or something like that. I think they did a little bit of that, but it was really just, you know, outlandish outfits or extra camo sets that didn't really have a big impact on the game. So you could see that even then they were kind of experimenting with what it could be. And Kojima is, if nothing else, an experimenter where he's going to try new things like we were talking about the blades of grass that move. Or, hey, what if, yeah, we blow up the enemies supply depot now they don't have those supplies oh how about we actually make you know detailed uh hit boxes on them so if you shoot them in the hand that they use to shoot their gun they are less accurate and if you shoot them in their radio their radio now does not work and there will be a little animation of them picking up the radio i need backup what why doesn't this work damn and throwing it on the ground which and that attention to detail 
that is really throughout the series, you can see almost the beta testing in action where someone said, well, hey, what if, what if I try and feed this boss a poison? What, you know, and he eats it. Shouldn't that have some effect, right? You know, like able to be manipulated like all the other enemies in the game. And they, and you can kind of hear a bunch of programmer heads nodding in unison and clicking away on keyboards after that, like, great idea. We're hmm. going to put that in the game. It's, it's, it's amazing that, like, that game can offer that level of realism where, like, almost every, si like, not every single, but a lot of your actions have, a lot of your actions that are logical have an equally logical result. Um, and, you know, immersing it in this, you know, kind of immersed in real historical events and simultaneously provide sort of a fantasy-esque element. I guess you would cons consider it to be like maybe historical fiction where these sorts of realistic uh, gameplay mechanics are set against the backdrop uh, of scenarios that pitch you up against villains or bosses that are sort of fantastical in their execution or it seems to pay homage to a lot of the conventions of the spy genre um, with, you know, and all the camp that kind of comes with it. You know, I guess a, a question would be, do you, do we, either of you have any ideas in your head about how the campiness set against that realism can improve the story that Metal Gear Solid 3 is trying to tell? And yeah. <laughs> <laughs> an example oh, of the man. camp right there. Um, that's such or, a you know, sniper move way to go, Andy. <laughs> I mean, it's, I can't see how that's not a direct improvement you know, <laughs> yeah. I I think for me, like the villains you fight in this are comic book villains. Like this doesn't like just combine um, or just doesn't play on spy tropes. It plays on superhero tropes. Essentially, Batman fighting like Clayface and Killer Croc and all these other like weird supernatural characters. And like I think it plays on that element of like. Yeah, no one really bats an eyelash and like Batman fights like a mystical powered bad guy versus like a, you know, real life one like Two-Face or something or something that lends itself to more like realism. And I think Metal Gear kind of gets that. It's like, all right, well, there's just, you know, dudes with weird powers. So like buy into that up front because this dude's just covered in bees and that's his thing. <laughs> yeah. uh, and then you'll, in just be, you'll be fine. Covered in bees. <laughs> <laughs> like one guy, like, I guess is a acrobat, you know, the fear is like yeah. a is kind of like acrobatic guy, but he's, he shoots poison. Dart. I like, I don't know. Um, he has like, is a, he a Russian carny? I, I, I feel like he's vaguely French. I, I don't know the lore on that. <laughs> that would make more sense. A huge, he gives off such a French vibe to me. I <laughs> when know. I think, when I think carnies, I think French, you know, children of paradise kind of thing. No, I, I just think, um, superhero tropes and the spy tropes like combining in this like whole different level of thing so yeah it kind of feeds off like old school comic pulps and things like that see i i take it as those ridiculous over-the-top elements are necessary sometimes because for one thing when you have your creative medium of video games which at its core to some degree is uh, computer-generated animation, it's almost important that you do something that you couldn't do in real life, that you couldn't do 
in just your basic movie to almost justify like we made this game from scratch with our imaginations if we don't have a guy who like photosynthesizes himself back to life with his talking parrot friend in it like (laughs) (laughs) why are we even here you know Oh, Jesus. oh boy but, i mean yeah but it, it also yeah. It, it serves kind of an important element to to the player to remind you that it is a game and you shouldn't take it too seriously even though they'll talk about a lot of serious points in it there's still kind of silly over-the-top interactions and comical situations that you can find yourself in to kind of pull you back and to, to say like okay, okay, like, I know you feel cool, but this is still just a game. And something that, I don't know if he's talked about it himself or if it's kind of become this secondhand information, but the idea of, in Metal Gear 2, he, uh, Hideo Kojima was kind of mad at the players who got so much enjoyment out of being the badass Solid Snake that he said, no, you have to play as a very wimpy, rookie, like emotionally crippled, weird character in Raiden who's like a fanboy of Solid Snake. See, you you play as you because you're emotionally crippled weirdo fanboys of this character I made. So sometimes having those elements that are like, don't take this too seriously, guys. We're going to have some ridiculous moments they might come immediately before or after some of the most gripping moments, but we need those to kind of break you out of it and to remind you to have fun mm. as well and to mess around because it is just a game. He's often been quoted as talking about how he always wanted to be a filmmaker and he could never find a way to break into the film industry. So when he started making video games, he decided like, these are my films and like these, this is how I'm going to tell the stories I want to tell. And I think it's funny too how... Solid Snake is such a iconic video game character, if not of one of the most iconic video game characters. And like they can get away with different versions of Snake and like clones of Snake all being voiced by the same voice actor. And we just all accept it like as if his voice wouldn't have any difference whatsoever. But like the fact that they can introduce this character that's super iconic, tr- almost troll the player and remove him in the sequel after the first act and totally 180 on the fans. And then in the next game, to make up for that, they make you play as, like, the original Snake who's not even the same Snake from the mm-hmm. other games because he's a clone. And, like, just the, the the way he can be liberal with that character, and in a way it gave them a big out because, you know, 1 and 2 were very serious pretty much all throughout, and they, they got a little crazy at some points um, and had their own kind of camp, you could say. But I think that 3, just even seeing Solid Snake make jokes and see him have this shit-eating grin when, like, someone does something that he's excited by, and, like, they they can now animate the character's face to have this, like, ear-to-ear grin that's, like, I would never see Snake smile like that in a game, but they can get away with it because this one is, like, you know, again, like, just like with Raiden, he's, he's an emotionally different character even though he may look the same and function the same way. Not only that, they, they set the mission as, like, you have some experience... At, you know, as the original Snake. That character has some experience, but he's going up against the challenge of his life, and he gets his butt whooped, 
you know, five or six times by his mentor in just, you know, no effort fights to display that he is really, you know, he is not the hero yet. And to see Revolver Ocelot in very much the same position, uh, you know, a little smaller down on the food chain of getting his butt handed to him by Snake repeatedly. And he almost becomes a deuteragonist rather than an antagonist in the series. When you kind of go like, oh, he's been there from the start and he's had a whole character evolution too. And you were opposed in your ideals, but it's not to say that he's just a corny bad guy. He actually has a foundation, but we're going to make you watch him be bad because it would just be it'd be no fun to watch somebody be good from day one you you have to see that growth in terms of uh like Hideyoka Jima subverting player expectations with like the whole ride and turn in in MGS2 this one was very much about you know the whole time like if you've played any of the other games like you know big boss is like this huge looming figure like father figure in the whole thing and like you've just got this sense of dread it's like all right well what's gonna tip this guy over right because in in the games before the playstation era big boss uh you know the snake from Metal Gear Solid 3 is the bad guy and he has you know dreams of kind of global domination not exactly but he's definitely somebody who needs to be stopped so see so if you if you look at those games and then this one to say he's he used to be a figure that we said well he's a bad person we need to stop him and he's the root of a lot of the problems in Metal Gear Solid 1 Metal Gear Solid 2 to look at him and almost being sympathetic to him now to say he was once in a position where he needed to save the world but he also got to see how complicated this espionage world is because there, there is a lot of kind of ian fleming in the game and especially the james bond femme fatale moments and some of that is problematic now but then there's also a, a john lacara kind of side of it too where there there's dialogue and there's negotiation and there's backdoor dealing or backroom dealing that makes the world stage a character in this not just a guy with jaws with metal jaws yeah no i i think the uh it's all just very even keel right it's like <laughs> like the u.s president and khrushchev and it's like okay like yeah, we're just gonna hash this out real quick uh you know like hey like you guys kind of nuked this place because we saw this u.s uh aircraft signature and like no, that wasn't us. Well, we kind of know it was you. Like, okay, well, you know, like, what do you want us to do? It's like, well, maybe kill these, you know, guy. And like, I feel like the the main point of this game was to say that if you try and exist in either one of those dichotomies, like, like right or wrong, um, based on the government, then you're just going to be blindsided by the third option. Spoilers for the end of the game, but you find out Eva, who's uh, been your kind of like sidekick throughout a lot of this is actually working for the Chinese. And it's like, you spend all this time looking at us versus Russia that it's like, yeah, China's just like got their own game running. Uh, and I think at the end of it, that's what pushes big boss over the edge to say, Oh, you know, like I've been looking at this as right and wrong. I'm going to go off and do the third alternative, which is, you know, like 
I pledge allegiance to no state and I'm going to start militaris sans frontieres, which is soldiers without borders. And I'm just going to do my own thing independent of all nations. And it's like, Oh man, like that's a, that's pretty heady territory for a game. Yeah. And also plays itself as like James Bond. Yeah. And like heavy for a game that like the next minute you can spin your character around in the main menu to force yourself to vomit (laughs) so that, you know, other characters in the game world think you're sick and they'll let you out of your prison cell. So it's like, again, like the game just sort of fluidly oscillates between very, very, no pun intended with a revolver ocelot, but, uh, um, uh, (laughs) (laughs) I think that deserved a meow. Searching searching for that button. Yeah. I got to find my play button there, but, uh, yeah. So, I mean, you know, you mentioned, uh, subverting player expectations and like, just subverting even from like a gameplay perspective, you know, you think you're going to play as one character because the art on the box looks just like, you know, the characters you remember from the other games. And then you get in there and it's like totally recontextualized. And, you know, Kojima goes so far as to add these super sophisticated gameplay mechanics. Like you're, you're mentioning how you can shoot the radio and the radio suddenly goes out. So communications fail. You can destroy parts of the environment that the, um, you know, the game characters in the world need and then once they don't have those supplies, it cuts them off. But there's also like a ton of really, really wacky comic book style ways to interact with the game world that makes it almost like there's like a slapstick element to it um, and almost like a commentary on like video game mechanics in and of themselves. Like, Alex, is there anything that stood out to you and um, when you were looking things up that, that, that you wanted to ask Ryan and Al about? Um, well, I know that you, you know, you mentioned the, uh, the spinning, the spinning snake around in the menu and then having him, you know, vomit in game and, and people reacting to that, which is kind of this weird, like meta blurring, um, between, you know, out of game, what's actually actually in game, which I think is kind of cool. Um, you know, there's the infamous ladder scene where Kojima makes you climb a ladder for, I think it's like two minutes and 30 seconds or something like that. Um, while this like sort of James Bondy spy, uh, song the sort of theme of snake eater plays over the climb which is kind of cool One thing I thought, you know, I, I saw when I was doing some research on this game that I thought was really funny is that obviously like the whole thing is like it's snake eater. You can, you know, there's multiple reasons for naming it that, but one of them is literally you can kill snakes and eat them. Um, but I thought it was funny that you can also collect this, the live snake and to use oh, it as a projectile yeah. and throw it at people and they like freak the hell Are out. Are you serious? Because <laughs> obviously a snake is in their face. Like, yeah so funny but yeah i mean you guys are obviously more familiar with the specifics of the gameplay mechanics so you know like if there's anything you've heard or seen now would be the time to really like dive into that and riff on it like what are some of the more like kooky crazy just surprising or just like uh, impressive gameplay mechanics you've seen oh well there there's you know some obvious ones especially early on in the game of right yo hey why don't i shoot this beehive to make it fall onto the soldiers and then they will they will run across this bridge 
and you know kind of clear a path great one but then also like hey what if what if i take my knife and i slash at the ropes of that bridge oh yeah that bridge is going to get less stable obviously um and it's going to be harder to walk across that or i think you can probably snipe it out too with some of your weapons so that the soldiers walking across it have to go very slow or you could may deliberately shake them off it just you know a brilliant thing there late very late in the game you're kind of being trailed by soldiers and there's a section where you walk over a very small log bridge that you wouldn't really think about uh, but i just found out watching uh, somebody play through it that oh yeah if you plant c4 or tnt on that bridge you can blow it up and then the soldiers can't come past you through that ravine like a really brilliant little again one of those things where a beta tester had to do that and they go why does that blow up the bridge and they go yeah it should blow up the bridge late in the game as well there's a good bit where you're planting demolition charges on fuel tanks in the hangar with the the shagohod the metal gear of this game the big you know f off final boss so to speak and if they're mechanics walking around in jumpsuits and i think if you disable them kill them knock them all out they they don't install armor on that shagohod boss and it becomes easier for you to take out then but there's no indication in the game at all that if you do that, you'll get that effect. But um, there, there's, there are a lot of bosses that you can manipulate in weird ways, especially using the fake death pill that you're equipped with to basically uh, fake yeah. your own death. And almost every boss in the game, if you use that near them, they, oh, he's dead? Weird. And will walk up, inspect you shrug their shoulders and walk away, at which point you can use a revival pill to come back and attack them, you know, for some really nice cheap shots. Again, that's not a mechanic that you're ever told to do. That's just something that you play around with and by this trial and error, you find alternative methods to overcoming your obstacles that really rewards you as a player for thinking outside of the box instead of just shoot, 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 run, 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 hide, hide, hide. I think it's got this element of like, hey, try anything with everything. It's like fake death pill. Yeah, you need that to beat the sorrow, which again, they never tell you. Like, you don't know how frustrated I was when I like, like <laughs> you got to use the revival pill. And I didn't even think about that because it's like kind of a throwaway line in the beginning. Uh, probably the most insane, like, subversive whole game is the end and it's like the most widely talked about boss battle i think in any metal gear series just because it's a sniper battle which on its nose is just very difficult but then like you've got all these wacky elements to it like coolest part about the boss battle with the end is that you could just turn the game off for a while and when you turn it back on It'll look at the date on like in your PlayStation and if it's like over a week, died of old age. And like that's you using real time to beat an enemy in a game without having to do anything. And it's just like it, it reminded me a lot of uh 
Metal Gear Solid One piece where you fight Psycho Mantis. Absolutely. And like you've got to yeah. you've got to switch the controller from port one to port two. Otherwise, like he'll just keep dodging your attacks. Yeah, because he can like and read like your mind, kind of, quote unquote, and like your mind being like the controller. Your but, character's mind is that controller port, which is the link to the character in the game. Like reconfigure that, then he can't read your mind anymore. And like this was like another one of those like, hey, manipulate the game or don't in real life and i like that's just like spellbinding to me yeah the fact that he was like willing to use every part of a video game including the control scheme or the hardware with which the game was being played on like he was even playing a little bit with the um the memory card reading as uh, with psychomantis like you mentioned where he wasn't there sometimes where he'd be like ah oh, i see that you're playing castlevania like he'd like likes Odin. Yeah, like, yeah, man. Yeah, he'd I like. Games. Yeah, he'd like figure out what other games you were playing, and it was this fourth wall breaking thing that even MGS One was doing. He he was that committed to the idea that like everything was on the table, um, like every aspect of a video game's like logic was available to you. There's even a part where you can like assassinate the end via sniper rifle like earlier in the game, so you don't have to fight him in that super long drawn out battle that's even mind-blowing because when you do that like i think it like something explodes and like his wheelchair wheel hits you in the face or something but like it's even like oh hey cool good job you you like you sidestep that whole boss battle now just to let you know like just to mock you we're gonna slap you in the face with this guy's wheelchair wheel like (laughs) congratulations you just killed an elderly man (laughs) (laughs) kudos on your elder abuse um something about that fight that i think it's overlooked sometimes was that if you saved in the middle of the fight when you booted that back up if it wasn't a week later the the end would have crept up on you and captured you knocked you out and put you in jail so they were using that mechanic to force you to play that entire fight start to finish which if you there are a lot of techniques to kind of cheese the fight but if you are trying your hardest and not knowing what to do and again not an era where online walkthroughs were all that prevalent where if you sat down for your first time and went like i can't out snipe this guy you could bang your head against that for hours say all right enough save your game i'll come back to it and then be kind of smacked in the face and told nope you have to go back to the start of that fight you don't just get to save with half of his health down and you you know kind of knowing where he is you're gonna have to come back to this fight have no idea where that enemy is he's gonna be back at full health you have to fight this like a sniper and experience that patient waiting endurance contest in order to prevail they really don't let you shortcut it unless you like, <laughs> like just ignore the thing for a week. But also, if you sneak up on him and hold him up, which hopefully we'll get into that mechanic, he, you know that's the way that you get his camo. That you have to not just you know every other boss you have to do a non-lethal takedown of them. You know, use your tranquilizers to defeat them to get the camo. But for the end, you actually have to stealth your way up to wherever he's hiding, point a gun at his head, and kind of go like, 
hey, I got the better of you. We're going to keep this fight going, but I got the better of you here. Yeah, speaking of like non-lethal paths, um, Ryan, I know that you had mentioned um, in your preliminary notes that you had some thoughts about that, just um, that there there may be like a path through the game that is entirely non-lethal. I don't have that gameplay experience, but if you you know want to provide some info on that. Answer, to answer that first, uh, yes, there is a path to get through the game entirely non-lethally. A lot of that involves fighting bosses, like Al mentioned, where you have to decrease their stamina, their life gauge. And I think that's kind of like an important distinction because throughout the whole game, you're running, you know, like running around getting food. You have to keep both your life and your stamina up. But if your stamina gets depleted, right, then you're like, you try to point your gun and it's all shaky and you're just kind of like, worthless at your job uh and that's how you beat a lot of the bosses um for me i think that's important um for a lot of different reasons primarily i i just think uh experience some gun violence and like oh i kind of i kind of hate guns and like i don't think that's necessarily too crazy of an opinion to have but um yeah that you would kind of go through and just like kill a bunch of people and you're like oh hey this is fun uh definitely isn't fun for me i mean there is still some element of like oh you're using a tranquilizer dart to shoot them right but the mechanics of tranking someone are completely different right like if a guard gets tranquilized they fall asleep and like you know a couple minutes later they're back on the board right so you have a limited time to sneak through that whereas if you just kill them like they're just dead forever and then when the enemy soldier finds a dead soldier like he calls an alert and they just keep hunting for you they know for sure you're there where it's like if he finds a sleeping guy he just kicks him and he's like like why are, why are you sleeping on the job gameplay is a little bit harder if you're trying to trank your way through it uh just because you don't actually eliminate any of the guards but uh it is more rewarding because well a the game rewards you with like special stuff like like you said you get the uh, camouflage of all the different bosses if you beat them non-lethally mm. just like kind of getting through to the end and just being like cool like I saved the day and I did it by like tactical advantages and like finding stealthy ways to like trick guards or move around them it's almost like brains over brawn wins the day right. I think that's like just a crazy more rewarding play to, way to play this game like that's where all the experimentation of the mechanics kicks in right that's where you're like oh okay what if i throw rotten food at a guard you know or what if i um you know trick somebody in the cell right rather than just being like well you know i just gotta gotta get an ak-47 or else yeah. i'm you know not gonna make it so there was something actually wanted to, to bring up really quick from uh kojima again about the making of the game that i think ties into that and this goes into the fact that the radar technology that was a huge part of Metal Gear Solid 1 and 2 where you could kind of watch the map and figure out where enemies are. Um, this game doesn't feature that and it's also tied to like the historical like reality that that technology wouldn't have existed in the 60s. So why should the main character and the player have access to that, that detail? And the, the one thing Kojima said about it was that um, in an interview with IGN back in uh, 2004, he said the series was turning into a radar game where you just pay attention to the radar where you don't use your visual senses or aren't listening. That's what I wanted people to depend on instead of the radar. So in the jungle, I wanted people to listen to the grass moving or listen to the noise around them. So that's why I got rid of the radar. 
And I'm wondering if you guys had any thoughts on like that change of the series. Like, was that a welcome change for you or did that take some getting used to? Well, um, based on that quote, just big mission accomplished on what he was setting out to do because playing the game, there are so many small details put into it that you have to be paying attention for it. Like there are tripwire traps in the game that are just right on the forest floor as you might expect them to be, but you have to be looking out for them or looking for, is there an animal in this bush that I want to eat? Or how about there? Is that a mushroom that is poisonous? Or is that one of the ones that will give you more stamina? Is that fruit up in the tree? I should probably be looking at that. And you do so much of that because you're looking for enemies who, again, in a lot of games of that era, not that there weren't amazing games coming out, but it, it was a lot of, you know, here's your enemy. It looks totally different from anything else in the environment, so it's very easy to spot. And it's got a red light where you want to shoot it because that's the weak point on it. Where during their development, they went and did survival training and they went into nature and studied how camouflage was used and how you would use survival techniques out in the world. So your enemies are going to be camouflaged as well. And they're going to be next to trees that blend in with their camouflage. They're going to be walking through grass that blends in with their camouflage. And if you do try and play this game just kind of running through shooting any enemies you see, you're going to quickly see how many enemies are tucked into little nooks and crannies or standing up on ledges that you would have seen if you were being smart about this and they're intelligently placed as you would probably want a patrol or an ambush to be placed and because you want to play this like a first person shooter like a medal of honor or a battlefield or something like that well congratulations you've just blundered into a really stupid situation most likely gotten yourself killed and you're chipping away at whatever good score you're going to get because you just thought, yeah, no, we'll, we'll chance it. Yeah. Speaking of like that sort of survival element. Um, I mean, it goes, I think deeper than, you know, the use of the radar into these sort of survival, uh, accoutrements, I guess, um, where something is always sort of depleting, whether it's your uh, hunger bar, your batteries, your silencer wearing away your stamina, so I guess in that, when you think about those survival elements in a game, like I don't, it, me personally, like I've never really found that type of gameplay uh, appealing. I remember installing a survival mod onto Skyrim for the PC and playing it for about like two hours and being like, yeah, screw this. I'm done with this shit. <laughs> Just having to set up like campfires and stay warm and make sure I'm eating all the time. I'm like, I get enough of this in real life. I don't really want to spend my fantasy. I'd rather spend my fantasy hours like, fucking up a dragon with like a two-handed greatsword then you know and i go out and camp a lot of campfires these days yeah <laughs> yeah exactly so you know taking that survival is sort of inherently stressful how do you guys think that in this specific case it makes the gameplay or the narrative more meaningful or enjoyable personally i think it it balances the game in a really elegant way 
I think in the previous games, you can rely on a singular strategy a lot more, um, whether it's just like trank every guard and like, but in this one, it's like, no, your silencer doesn't allow you to, it, it degrades. So if you rely on it too much, then it's going to become a liability because guards will be able to hear you shooting. If you don't maintain like uh, your stamina level through like eating food, then you your shot will be off and it's like you're just it's that real element of like you're not going to be a marksman 100 percent of the time so like how do you influence that uh well it's by staying healthy and taking care of yourself so i think there was like a greater if you are going to really take over this character how do we make you really care about that character other than just like oh man don't catch bullets because then your life bar will go down it's like no like you got to eat you like there's a couple points in the game where you sleep which i thought was just kind of like it's like, and then Snake takes a nap. I'm like, cool. <laughs> Even heroes need sleep, I guess. Yeah. And and the batteries and stuff is crazy too, because you can also find like uh elements in the game that will fix these things for you, right? Like if you're really crafty about how you sneak around places, then you can get like silencers. And if you kind of do like little side missions where um you're like, oh cool, here's a bunch of rewarding stuff because you you put in the effort to get there. The batteries, there's like mushrooms that'll recharge your batteries if you get them. And there's also like mushrooms, those same mushrooms, I think the Russian glow caps. If you throw them out when you're fighting Volgan, anytime he tries to electrify you, they'll draw the charge from Volgan. Oh my god. So he won't be able to hit you with that like like lightning beam. Wow. And even with the with the the pain, the character the pain if you take one of those hornets nests from the jungle area, you throw it down when he tries to shoot all his hornets at you, they just go into the nest. That's and amazing. then you can pick up that nest. Stamina recovery boost. Like, uh, it's one of the bigger ones in the game. And it's just like, you're just like hornet soldiers. Like, I don't really get what's going on there, but it's just like a brilliant gameplay mechanic of like, hey, there's a synergy between these two things. There's like, guy who shoots hornets, like put them together. Like, there's this electric mushroom and this guy who shoots electricity put them together like there's this guy who's running around eating like food off the ground like throw poison food at him like put those things together and again i think we've touched on the fact that like none of this is explicit but it really challenges you to like play the game not just like beat it but just like play through it and experiment and like really get into the the fun of like what are the different ways to achieve this goal? Which I think has always been the strength of the Metal Gear series. Um, run and gun your way through it and like try and do like a, a super quick, you know, like speed run on, but like it's not going to be rewarding. And you're still going to get all the cinematics and everything. But I mean, when you're just like, oh, hey, man, I like did this, cr-, like I just threw poison snakes out to like defeat the fear and like I'm eating the pain's hornets and like, uh, you know, like, a mushroom helped me defeat Volgan. Like these are all just insane things. I think some of the the reason why the survival mechanics are very successfully executed in the game is because they're unobtrusive. Like you talked about in Skyrim, the idea of like you've gone ten minutes without eating. This is a problem. You need to eat now, or you know, you need to find twenty sticks to build a fire. They just become padding where the survival elements in Metal Gear 3 were so innate to what you were doing already. Like, hey, you should hunt for animals because you should be looking around hunting for enemies. You should hunt for animals as well. And finding out which animals are good to eat and which ones 
will make you sick or which ones will provide a huge benefit you know that becomes a game in itself that you're you're exploring this game to a deeper degree and you're getting rewarded for it where you can just kind of go through and find the rations which were the healing item for every other iteration of the series and they're grand they work but in this case they 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 almost seem to supplement the natural bounty around you the other element that i found was made into a really fun game was the uh kind of the survival viewer where you would heal yourself after injuries and that the game started to take notice to go like you know every time you take damage it's different whether you get shot or whether somebody threw a grenade at you or whether you know you you broke your arm because you fell off of something there there is there's a different mechanic to each part of that and you need to heal them in different ways so instead of just looking at your health as a figure a statistic that's going down or up let's dive into what would you do to sew up a stab wound that you got and treat it with a disinfectant and a styptic and to stop the bleeding and a bandage to cover and protect that wound you know what would you do if you were bitten by a poisonous snake well you you'd have to take anti-venom but you'd have to do this and you have to do that it's not just a simple you know button press it becomes this thinking exercise again the fact that they put that much detail into the game but also made it something that you'd want to do that would have actual tangible benefits for your character but also was an interesting little mini game that you got good at was a great way to encourage that play rather than just making a punishment for not doing it it's almost like that's maybe the puzzle element of a Metal Gear Solid game um, if there is any for this one, because a lot of it is like focusing on not being seen, dealing with conflict as soon as you run into it, um, these very dramatic cinematic boss battles. But a lot of what you're saying, Al, is actually, it makes me feel like these elements are even influencing all the way to like Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild, where so much of that game was known for cooking and foraging food and creating items with that food that would give you an advantage at some point. And um, it's almost like, Metal Gear was doing that, you know, 13, 14 years before that even happened, like introducing this idea of food management into an espionage game. Uh, so that's, I think this game is like, also seems like it, it, in the series in general, it has a, had a huge influence on a lot of the games that have come after it, whether it's like the cinematics or the little like micro realistic gameplay moments. Um, so that's, that's, it's just funny how much that's reminding me of it right now. Yeah, I think we've mentioned Kojima is considered a director, which wasn't a position really previously in games. Uh, but even just looking at his work on the PlayStation era and, and beyond, kind of forgets some things. He has some earlier games, um, Snatcher and Police Knots, that are, again, like really innovative uh ideas for how games should be played for elements you can put into them something i played a bit of snatcher i haven't finished it but something from that game is you need to contact uh you need to get a phone number and the phone number is in an advertisement on one of the screens 
and only through just watching the screen and watching this advertisement scroll until that phone number comes up do you find it and then he carried that over to say in metal gear solid one you need merrill's uh kodak code that's on the back of the box that's the only place you can find it in the game that idea that somebody should be driving a story should have elements that stay consistent and should be in kind of a think a think tank situation because he doesn't create him in a vacuum he has a team he has other writers he has developers he has a, a whole group of people that work with him so sometimes the name gets a little too much recognition but that being said having somebody who drives a video game as a visionary prod product was something that he pushed and he changed the whole of the industry to work more towards that I just think it's interesting that like the the medicinal mechanics and the food mechanics for as like huge as they were in this game and how much like more interesting and fun it made it for me uh just didn't really come back in any of the other games and yeah, I, really I don't know if there was like a backlash against that or something but it, it seemed like they tried it out and maybe like the food foraging aspect only really works when you're like in a jungle section but i feel like in metal gear 5 that would have been like really interesting um but instead we just got kind of this like hey man you gotta go collect some like plants in any way nearly as fascinating as like the the food and medicine mechanics in mgs3 so and my interpretation of that is that you know as the original trilogy because I, if I, if I'm right on this, he didn't want to come back and direct four, and there was a lot of backlash against that. And he kind of reluctantly did, but just the idea of he did what he wanted to do. He made the game he wanted to make. He did these things, and almost why do them again in a David Bowie way for somebody who clearly loves David Bowie as Kojima does? You know, why would you do? Why would you make the last album? just like the next album you know innovate do something different get rid of what you did before burn that you know yeah. start fresh he even named the one uh the one character you talked to major tom i thought that was funny. oh yeah that character is so much like david bowie it's it's really uncanny <laughs> do you copy you're already in enemy territory and somebody might be listening in from here on out we'll be using code names to refer to each other your code name for this mission will be Naked Snake. I'll be referring to you as Snake from now on. You're not to mention your real name. Snake? What, you don't like snakes? What do you mean? You've eaten one before, haven't you? In survival training. <laughs> I'm glad to hear that. I don't know if I'd ever order one in a restaurant, but... Be careful, you might not have a choice. What about you, Major? What should I call you? Hmm, let's see. I'll be... I'll be Tom. Call me Major Tom. Gotcha. Getting back to the subject. One of the subversive parts, I think, of this series that I don't think I've really seen in any other game series, but Metal Gear always does it, is the codec calls. Um, yes. Just even re-watching videos of this, I forgot how one of my favorite parts of the first two Metal Gear Solids was I would I was probably like calling people on the codec for half of the game just to see if they would answer. And just that mm -hmm. like social element of... You could just call NPCs at any time. You don't have to walk up to them. And you could have this, like, you could hide in a corner and just have a phone call. It almost, like, 
balances the tension of the game that like I could be in a cardboard box or like sitting in like a mud pile with a alligator hat on and just call up major Tom and say, Hey, what's going on today? How you doing? And for that to be something that they thought about what's what would these characters say in almost every situation you're in? Right. Yeah. Uh, the hundreds of hours of dialogue in those games is astounding to think about. They get the attention to detail to make those background characters who you don't need to talk to necessarily. Again, watching watching a playthrough of it, I was kind of struck by how few of those really forced codec calls you get. Where in two, it was really bad for walking into a new room and having a 10 minute conversation and then walking into the next room and having have a five minute conversation and just feeling like you were constantly interrupted and bombarded with information that you really didn't want or need, which again, totally ties into the theme of what they were doing. But in Metal Gear 3, there, there are so few of them. You, you get rewarded by finding out about paramedics' love of different movies or, you know, Sigan's ideas about nature and camouflage and the animals you eat. You get that because you, you sought it out, not because it was forced on you. optional element of the Codex was, like, very preferable to, to how it played out in Metal Gear 4, which could get... Uh, <laughs> I enjoyed that game, but it has a lot of flaws. Uh, and I think... <laughs> and that's what makes 3 so amazing, is it's like... One of the questions I was just thinking about going into this podcast was, why are we talking about Metal Gear 3 and not like 1 or 5 or 2 or reluctantly 4 or Peace Walker? Just the most balanced, like best encapsulation of what Metal Gear is. And it's, I think it's also kind of, I was kind of like to first principles, right? It's like, well, you know, like how did Snake get the bandana and how did, you know, what does Metal Gear really mean? Like, I don't think they've really discussed where the name comes from in previous games. But in this one, it's like, yeah, it's like the missing link, kind of like the the gear and that makes everything like turn and work together. And it's like, oh, that's pretty diabolical. It felt pretty organic the way they like very casually came up with the code names and that's where Snake got his name. And it's just like, duh, they would obviously do that if they're going into a country they should not be in for this mission they should not be doing that no one should know about. And it just seemed like such an obvious solution to something that we just take for granted is like, yeah, that's just what it is because that's what the game makers decided was cool. So it was cool that they even found like very colloquial, like grounded ways to just establish huge huge amounts of like lore that that uh influenced the rest of the series so i totally agree with you on that there's like a really wild rabbit hole theory we can get down where uh, you can posit and reliably back up to some degree that every game in the metal gear series is a remake of a previous game in the metal gear series <laughs> uh, yeah. one uh is like the infiltration mission right and then they had to port that over to like Kojima got wrapped up in doing the sequel where he's like, all right, well, I'll just like kind of remake this. If we're going to yeah. do the same thing, I'll make it better. And then Metal Gear Solid comes out and it's like, well, this is what I would would have done with Metal Gear if I had this technology. So it's kind of a remake of that. It was like, oh, well, like your characters, they're trying to remake Solid Snake by putting him through like the same like simulation with the tanker. Totally. Or not the tanker, but 
the outer heaven thing right and then three is kind of like it's remaking dope. all this stuff in the past like you said where you're going from like the jungle to like the the old school kind of like buildings and whatnot and then like four is remaking everything in a tired and like rigorous way and then five is just kind of like yeah we're just gonna, you're gonna do everything you did in peace walker again and it's like good god yeah <laughs> and, and again looking at the creator because kojima's been making metal gear games for like 25 years ish i don't have the exact date but that's a huge chunk of time to make metal gear on the super nes all the way up uh making like get, there's one on the game boy color that i played and was great there's like metal gear acid on the psp there's the rising and revengeance games which i know we don't want to talk about then there's like portable ops there's a lot of metal gear out there and i feel like if if my livelihood and the livelihood of people i work with was tied to like you need to make another game using the same characters and the same structure that you have made five times at this point i would just want to throw two middle fingers up and say you know what now we're gonna make him old and he's gonna have arthritis and everybody he loves (laughs) is gonna make fun of him because i'm sick of this character and it's gonna be ridiculous and over the top and these two characters are gonna (laughs) (laughs) yeah (laughs) with with kojima's gonna make spend this much time making metal gear and trying to find so many ways to express his thoughts on things like war and life as a soldier and all that. Um, I thought, you know, at the end here, we could bring up a little bit about like the theme, the story, the overarching story he's trying to tell uh, in snake eater. And there is one quote I wanted to start with um, from a article from Gama Sutra uh, It's called why metal gear solid three or what metal gear solid three teaches us about hyper reality. Um, It was near the end of the article. And in summary, it says, As is characteristic of Kojima's work, Snake Eater begs the question as to whether games are just escapist entertainment or active forms of engagement with the potential to say something significant. Kojima seems to be pushing for the latter in Snake Eater by employing hyper-reality as a narrative technique to play with player perceptions. And I think one of the ways um, that he's potentially like playing with player perceptions the most is something, Ryan, that you brought up. Um, that you really wanted to touch on, which is this this quote you had. It's called "Sympathy for the Devil." Getting us to care about Big Boss is the most anti-Metal Gear War message possible. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about how this game gets us to you know change our perception on like the villain or like what it means to be like the most anti-Metal Gear thing they could do. That's my favorite aspect of this game. It equivocates good and evil, and I think it's best mentioned um, line from the boss in the beginning uh, where she's kind of giving you this monologue almost as if she knows what she has to do later. And it essentially states that, you know, snakes going on this thing where he's like, I'd follow the president and the top brass. Well, the president and the top brass change. Like they're just people. The thing that really dictates like what the mission is, is the times. And it's like, Snake's like, what do you mean? And it's like the current zeitgeist is essentially what's going to determine what right and wrong is. She's like, these are concepts that shift with like political situation is. So like 
yesterday's enemies might be tomorrow's allies or something like that. Yeah, she um, kind of like in the very beginning of the game almost goes into like the thesis of the game. Like the first time you talk to her, it's pretty amazing. So playing through this whole game where you're like, oh, okay, like my mentor, like this person that I've learned everything from has like betrayed me and having to eventually find out at the end that like, no, she was loyal to the mission. It's the people that sent her on the mission that betrayed her. So how can you ever trust them and do another mission for them again? And it's, you just see this like light go off and snake where he's like, oh, same thing to me and they'll just consider it a success and he's like there's no way to play for any side in this game i have to just kind of like i have to a teach these motherfuckers a lesson i've got to like get my own my own thing going and that's ending on that like just emotionally potent note where like he's saluting the boss's grave and it's an unmarked grave like that was like the biggest emotional gut punch I think I've ever gotten from a video game. And like, he's standing there, he's saluting and like the like tear rolls down his face and he's just got that like grimace. And you're like, this dude is going to fuck everybody up. (laughs) And I just remember just being like, I hope they make another game this series because I would love to play the game where like big boss just like, and you don't ever really get a satisfying version of that. Like I played Peace Walker and even then it like kind of equivocates. It was going to be like the real breaking bad turn. But what three accomplishes is like, what would it take to get you to turn on like the idea, not only of like loyalty to a country or a cause, but just dichotomies as a whole accomplishes that really well. Because at the end of the game, you're like, well, you know, screw Russia, screw the United States. Like, like I just kind of gave my all and it was basically used for, you know, just advancing the interests of people that aren't going to care about me. So I think you learn to have sympathy for big boss in the sense that you're like, Oh, I see what would drive someone to kind of build their own military void of any nation out in the middle of like international waters and just like seek to bring about a different kind of world order. In a game that, seems so political and um, so concerned with sort of national militaries and, you know, soldiers' lifestyles with respect to those military structures. It's it's interesting that, like, ultimately it ends with sort of a snub at those sorts of uh, political structures. And I wonder if we were to view the Metal Gear Solid series as a trilogy, like one through three, um, kind of like how Al was saying, you know, coming back for four was sort of a sort of a task for Kojima. Um, what do we think the overarching message he's trying to say about politics, war, espionage, all of these sort of crucial elements of the game? What do we think the what do we think the ultimate thesis is here? My interpretation is kind of that he he makes these games and in a in a media that is really gung-ho about having hard-jawed, you know, rough-eyed, burly man monsters who just chainsaw their way through problems and like throw out pithy one-liners at the end of it. He he wants to do justice to the people who 
are actually involved in the in something that's really savage and really horrifying. And at the top of the podcast, I talked about how I had a childhood fantasy to be a soldier and arriving at this ripe old age I am now, I've seen how that's just what it is, a fantasy. And the romanticism about war and the patriotism of it are are just really manipulative tools that get just honest people who have emotions and who have stresses and who have independent hopes and dreams beyond the world of fighting you know it chews them up and spits them out at the same time this is a story written by Japanese people and it's written initially for a Japanese audience and it's getting sent out across the world and translated into different languages. Not to be a huge weeaboo about this, but I think there's there's an influence of the samurai culture on how he portrays these characters and the idea of loyalty beyond death to your masters. You know, the boss being a character in this who goes through so much and ultimately is willing to completely sacrifice her life for a mission in one way, but to kind of this higher need and this code of honor that she has for herself feels like a very, uh, you know, samurai notion of how you should be. And then to kind of take that and say, right, that era is gone. And, the people in charge aren't benevolent towards us anymore the way maybe in their own fantasy world, in their own history with a nice rosy hue on it, the the shoguns were merciful and benevolent and cared about their soldiers, the people who are laying down their lives. We've now entered a world where the person in charge does not know the name of the person laying down their life for that cause. And you can't have that same level of honor and dedication in a world where it doesn't go both ways. That's well said. Yeah, that's, wow. That's good. That's Ryan, Jesus, Ryan thoughts, that. counter thoughts? Oh, that was pretty good. I was going to say the same thing. Um, oh, perfect. <laughs> <laughs> that we, agree uh, we are in agreement. Uh, I think ultimately his thesis is that everything, like everything gets perverted over time, even bringing you back to the, like the, not to use a pun, but ground zero of the metal gear series that the boss had an ideology. And like, if you go back to metal gear solid one, it's like this demented kind of like uh, a son trying to reinterpret what he thinks someone else's interpretation of an idea is and just getting it completely all wrong because they're throwing in their own like biases and like this thing. So when liquid snake is trying to build big boss's dream of like a world without borders, it's actually boss's dream of a world without borders, but it was more so that, so that people wouldn't have to fight and that you wouldn't have to get absorbed in an ideology that would grind you into something that you weren't and lose that sense of self. And I think he does a good job of examining like these things have like humble origins 
last the test of time like anything will degrade over time uh and maybe that plays into the fact that you have all these like depleting batteries and silencers and staminas and lives and medical supplies over time that are degrading it's just like everything will get to the point where it becomes its antithesis right like america is you know started on freedom and you know all this stuff but it gets to a point where it's trying to repeat someone's personal freedom in service of the country. How many of us have seen the TV show Chernobyl? Yeah. Oh God, it's so good. God, it's so hard. It's so hard to watch. <laughs> Alex, did you see it? No, I have not. It's, I know. Uh, I know. It, it's a it's tough show to watch, but I bring it up because I think that Metal Gear Solid 3 is more relevant uh, today than I anticipated. Um, you know, a lot of the things you're talking about there, Ryan, about and now too about like loyalty to a country and like perverting the reality of like geopolitical problems and uh like the idea of like the forgotten hero or like the hero who really hasn't been portrayed as a hero so are they really a hero in any way shape and form um in that article that i quoted earlier about perception um there was a they it featured really briefly a quote from a character in the game eva Um, and the quote was half of what I'd been told was a complete and utter lie. The other half was a conveniently constructed lie. Where's the truth then it's hidden in the lies. And I was, I read that. I'm like, it feels like that was just, you know, pulled straight from the screenplay to Chernobyl almost. Um, and I think given like the political landscape we're in now and like both the game and Chernobyl, like deal with America and Russia. And that's like, obviously, a huge booming topic over American politics today. So if anything, I think if anyone out there was to play this game today, they'd find throughout all the camp and the, uh, the meows and uh, the goofy game mechanics, they'd find a story that is incredibly relevant. Um, so I got to say hats off to Kojima for making something that timeless without maybe even knowing it at the time. It ultimately comes back down to uh, since none of those, ideologies can stand the test of time the test of time without being perverted like there's is how you handle individuals in the moment and that's why i think like the non-lethal element is just insane because it's like you like it defines who you are in the game like at the end of it but you're still big boss so like big boss is like this kind of like mass murderer versus big boss is this misunderstood guy who's just trying to like work everything out like you have the freedom to create that legacy within the game which is is kind of interesting Mm -hmm. That's really cool. Like, I feel like we've tied up a lot of narrative uh, to go back to like the concept of Ludo narrative that we've talked about before. I feel like you're you're kind of talking about resources degrade over time, kind of looping back into the idea that ideas and ideologies and those who sort of wield them as a weapon also degrade over time, and sort of a nice uh, kind of consistency between gameplay and and the st- and the narrative of the game. The sort of choice that uh, you can have to take like a non-lethal. Uh, route through the game those sorts of things uh, show how this game is sort of in a league of its own which is cool i have a feeling that i'm going to be going out very soon and purchasing a copy of it yeah there's a good chance i'm gonna go walk down to the uh exchange in the neighborhood and see if they have a copy um because yeah i'm I'm pretty fascinated to dive back into this even though i played a probably good part of act one when i was a teenager i think a lot of it still seemed brand new to me rewatching some of the gameplay clips. I have honestly beaten this game probably like four or five times. And it's like something I get like the perennial Jones to just go out and play. 
lead up to Metal Gear Solid Five, I just bought the uh, I had a PS3 and I bought the HD edition uh, or HD collection and just replayed all of them. And uh, I I played them in order because I was just like Metal Gear Three is going to be the best one. Obviously, like you play two, you play Metal Gear Solid One, and you're like, oh man, I forgot everyone's just like a potato face with like oh my god, yeah, <laughs> just super like uh, polygony limbs and stuff. Um, yeah, there's something just special about this game where like the graphics are good enough, the gameplay is balanced enough, and the narrative is so strong that like I could play this 20 years from now and not have any like groans about like the gameplay or the camera angles or anything because like. It's just so well done. It's incredible. It's truly a masterpiece, in my opinion. Very much so. I, I've considered it kind of my desert island game, where, sure, that there are a lot of ones that maybe, oh yeah, the big sandbox and a million different ways to play it, but this just tells one story, and it tells that one story perfectly. I would want to... You know, I would want to be lost in that jungle for days on end if I could be. Well, I think that brings it pretty full circle with the, the very first thing you shared with us, Al. Um, I want to thank you guys for how articulate and passionate you spoke about this game. It, it As you can tell, Alex and I are both very intrigued and want to check it out ourselves in full. I think it's we've been looking forward to this conversation for a long time, and I am the opposite of disappointed. Uh, I'm, I'm really, it's really exciting to hear about this and uh, just revisit another classic uh, from an era that we haven't really covered too much on this show, that kind of between PS2 and PS3 era. I think if there's anything I'd want to end on, I'm actually curious to know what either of you think the name of, what either of you think the meaning of the name Snake Eater uh, alludes to whether it's you know comical or serious. Do you have any takes on that? Was it is it the death of the author where you try and kind of understand everything they did to the point where they just go, yeah, no, the door was red because I thought it would look cool. There, there's part of that, and then part of me wants to say, well, you know, the idea of the Ouroboros being an infinite figure consuming itself for all time not only ties into the military-industrial complex, which is a big underlying current of almost all of his works, but also the idea of the suffering that we will put ourselves through will never actually end because there will always be some new mission that shows up, some new challenge that we will have to endure, that we will grow by stripping away the the dead parts of ourselves, the old growth. It has to be the Ouroboros reference, right? Like a snake eating its tail. You're literally a snake eating a snake, like yeah. in the game. And and, 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 and then the boss at the end transforming into a snake. You mean the female boss, right? Not yes. you. Yeah. Yeah. Does that actually happen? Her her scar she's got a big scar up her body. Again, does this really happen? Is this an allegorical thing? Is this her spirit leaving her? Is it the pain of everything she's gone through? Like kind a snake of hallucinating reborn? off the shrooms. He probably ate the whole game. Hey, you know, hey, hey. Think about that. I don't know. Not at all. But uh, yeah, so, but yeah, it slithers, the scar slithers off of her body. It becomes huh. a snow white snake that, you know, slithers off into the underbrush. Oh, that's fast. You can yeah. capture it. 
Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. I mean, if you think about it, the whole thing is like a snake eating its tail, right? Like you're working for the military. Like they do all this stuff to you that makes you the enemy of the military. And then like in the next game, they get this guy, you know, Metal Gear Solid 1, they get a guy through the military to go fight you. And then through his lesson and all that becomes like a antithetical to the military. And it's like about kind of how this is just another revolution of that cycle, right? And I, I would say probably in closing that like every aspect of this game from like the music to the voice acting to the gameplay dynamics is just perfect in a way that the other ones aren't. Like even in Metal Gear 5, like the, mo- the most recent one, it's like is just flat and bad. Um, the characters don't really make sense in any way that like drives them through the story. And like this one, you just get so much more of that just like rich narrative that like, yeah, I could play this forever. Yeah, and as as much as we have fallen over ourselves complimenting this game, even the things that are campy, like the ladder, I'm like, well, yeah, but that represents like your ascension from this this part of the game where you're mainly in the wild and then you ascend and you've beaten some things and you've gotten a lot of skills and now you come up into the base and now you have to forget all of that animalistic side of you that you've learned and now the camouflage isn't useful and now you're go you can't just hunt for you know the things you need you you once again have to be reborn through this you know, transformative process of climbing a ladder for two minutes. It's just stuff like that that is crammed into that game. Yeah, it's literally the uh, snake shedding its skin. Oh, interesting. Right. You you just blew my mind, Andy. (laughs) I mean, do we... (laughs) You've just said it all. Thanks for tuning in to Screen Looking. We hope you enjoyed today's episode as much as we did putting it together. And if you did, the best thing you can do to help us reach more people like you is by sharing it with a friend, leaving us a rating or review from wherever you tune into podcasts. Music in today's episode is entirely from the official soundtrack to Metal Gear Solid 3, Snake Eater. And any references throughout our conversation can be found with links in our show notes. I'd like to give a big thank you to my co-host, Alex Koval, for all of his help in putting together today's episode. And last but not least, we'd like to thank our friends and guests, Ryan and Al, for, uh... Okay, now, that's pretty strange. Is anyone else out there hearing that? Ryan. Al. This is Solid Snake. Andrew and Alex wanted me to send you some words of gratitude for your years of friendship. They say that you've known each other for many, many years, over long distances, that you bonded over Metal Gear. Well, I just wanted to let you know that age hasn't slowed you down one bit. And I wanted to remind you to remember the basics of CQC. It sounds like you're excellent friends, and that's all anybody can be. So, from them and me to you, I just wanted to say thank you. And any time you're feeling down, just remember this. Ryan... Al, you're pretty good.